for the first two days, the only note I gave him was don't look at the camera. He could not stop looking at the camera. And then eventually I said, look, you've just got, you've got to look at something else. What am I going to look at? I said, look at Judy Dent. She's really interesting. I think that having us vocally reinforce that our importance to the industry is equivalent to anyone who's on stage, off stage, in front of house, back of house, whatever, is one of the biggest opportunities we have to, to drive a better future for live event workers and make it more stable. It's been taking most stores two or three weeks to get enough petition cards signed to file their petitions. In our store, it took three days. We've got just such excited, unanimous support. We just ran through it. I think we've got to get out of this trap of almost agreeing with the narrative that any wage growth above inflation is bad. It's That's not the case. We should be getting at a bare minimum wages growth keeping up inflation and then it's a case of, right, we've got some productivity benefits. We deserve to get rewarded for those. This idea of fundamentally situating solutions around how black experts think about the problems that we're facing globally. That needs to be core to any single conversation across policy industry, academia, moving forward. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. On today's show, director Kenneth Branagh discusses his new film, Belfast, with fellow director Christopher Nolan on The Director's Cut, the podcast from the Directors Guild of America. And on the Live Event Workers podcast, what's ahead for workers in the live event industry following the extended industry-wide shutdown due to COVID-19? Then we'll hear from working barista Kai Fireside about Starbucks union efforts in Eugene, Oregon on the Brain Labor Report. From the On The Job podcast, Slaying the Inflation Myth. We wrap up today's show with Anna Gifty Opoku Aigaman, editor of The Black Agenda, discussing the need for black expertise across policy, industry, and academia on the State of Working America podcast. I'm Chris Garlock, and that's all ahead on today's selection of highlights from the nearly 150 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network. If you like what you hear, and we hope you do, you'll find links to the entire programs in our show notes. And of course, you can find all 150 shows on our website, laborradionetwork.org. Here's the show. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Director's Guild of America. In today's episode, an Irish family experiences a tumultuous time in director Kenneth Branagh's drama, Belfast. The semi-autobiographical tale follows a working-class family and their nine-year-old son during the late 1960s in the Northern Ireland capital, where political and religious clashes turn their world upside down. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theatre in Los Angeles, Mr. Branagh shares insight into the making of Belfast with fellow director Christopher Nolan. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. Thank you for being here tonight, Ken. Um, and uh, thank you for this wonderful movie. I don't want to jump ahead uh, with the conversations we've already had about the film, but uh, it's clearly a very personal work, first and foremost. Um, and so just to, just to kick off, 
the simple version of this question is what's true? No. You know, how much of this, how much of this is, is from your life is, is real recollections? Well, from 50 years and with this uh, idea of taking the perspective of a, of a, of a nine-year-old, um, obviously the truth was going to be not entirely sort of uh, objective or strictly accurate in a way it, that was intentional. I mean, one, one big element of that was not to do what I think some people feel obliged to do when they deal with anything that is to do with the Irish question, which is to try and sort of solve or explain it all in one film. Far mightier minds than I uh, have, have grappled with that one. I knew that I wanted to see this sort of big shift happen and be written across the features of a nine-year-old's uh, eye. So to some extent, a heightened version of it, of, of, of what happened was what I was after. One that was also being processed through the imagination of a nine-year-old who was very caught up in storytelling in, in, in the movies. Well, getting on to casting, uh, I mean, we've just seen what a great director you are, what a great writer you are. You're not inexperienced as an actor, let's be frank. Uh, was there a temptation to, to take a part yourself? Um, or did you? what was your thinking behind not appearing in the film? Did you just want to focus... Well, I'll be honest with you. No, I was, there was a, a version of the script and we, we shot it where an older version of Buddy that I played featured a few times during and then comes back to Belfast. Uh, and we shot all of that and it just didn't work. It didn't work. It was superfluous and, um. So you were in the film, but you got cut out. I got cut out, yes. Oh, wow. It was the, it was the first well, time stick, I... stick with it. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, was the, it was the first time I hadn't had to write that, that letter saying, <laughs> you were great. It's not, not you, it's me, it's me. Um, so, so I just had to say that internally. Um, yeah, so I, I was in and then I cut myself out completely. Fantastic. Um, so Jude, you know, the, young, the young buddy, um, how did you find him? Uh, 300 self-tapes came in from uh, an infrastructure in Northern Ireland, which is very, very impressive for films these days. T you know, 10 years of Game of Thrones and many other great, great mm. pieces of work mean, mean you can plug into, um, anywhere that you might find a talented person. Uh, he, so he did many Zoom auditions and then he eventually, we started doing some Zoom talks and, um, he struck me as, uh, as somebody who was a, a great listener. He had a good sense of humor. I liked the fact that he was an Irish dancer. Um, he, so he'd practiced a lot. He, I, I said, well, what does that mean? He said, you know, well, on a Saturday morning, we get up about five o'clock and we have to drive a long way across Ireland. And then I have to do my first dance. Then I have to wait for a couple of hours. Then if I get through to the next round, I do the dance again. Then if I get through to the final, I do again. And sometimes you don't win. Um, and I thought, that's great. That is great prep for being in a film. You know, you'll get up very early. You'll hang about. You'll have to be really good when they ask you to come on. And, um, so, so that was helpful. But, and sometimes you don't win. And sometimes you don't win. You know, we didn't talk about percentages, but definitely sometimes you don't win. Um, but he, uh, you know, half the film was going to depend on how he reacted, how he listened, and, uh, how, and, and sort of so he seemed somebody who was listening, not just preparing to say something again. He, you know, he, he was very unusual. He got strong opinions and, you know, he's got a proper big personality. And, um, but in, in the end, it's an act of faith. At least that's, you know, you give it a go. I, I, I can't tell you. He walked in and he was a natural. He walked in, he was really, really good. Um, and we knew we couldn't make the film unless we believed we found a young actor on whose shoulders we could carry it. 
we thought we had. And for the first two days, the only note I gave him was don't look at the camera. He could not stop looking at the camera. I mean, <laughs> ju- ju- at the beginning or at the end, he do- it became a sort of game. It's like, when would you catch him doing this thing? And then eventually I said, look, you just go, you got to look at something else. What am I going to look at? I said, look at Judy Dench. She's really interesting. Um, and he, uh, and he, 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 the, 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 he then had many more scenes with the others and he, he, he then saw this incredible sponge really soaking up what it was like to be on a set. So Ken, thank you so much for sharing the story behind the story, but most importantly, thank you so much for sharing your story on the big screen with us. Thank, thank, you, you. thank you. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. This is the Live Event Worker podcast. We're talking to live event workers about 2022 and the path forward. Joining us are three workers calling from the road based in Boston, audio engineer Joe Samala. Also with us is Minneapolis, Minnesota business agent Matt Tewilliger, and from Philadelphia, regional theater audio head of department Waylon Farrell. Is the great resignation real? Did live event workers quit or change career paths? Waylon. The great resignation is 100% real. I mean, it has been two years since we've had any kind of uh, like stability or uh, knowledge about what the next six months of our life is going to look like the next six months. I mean, the next one month of our life, it's definitely pushed people across the board and from so many different sectors within my, my sect of live events, especially theater. I've watched some of the most talented stage managers I've ever known completely walk away from that path and, and join the medical field. So much has happened. And so much has changed. And it's hard for me, even in this position, to grasp exactly how long it's been. Because there's still a certain part of me that feels stuck in limbo in like June of 2020. Like, uh, it's going to get better. Like, we're going to go back to, I can't wait to work on the concerts, you know, with my, with my friends this summer. And that moment certainly hasn't felt like it, it has come back. Joe Samala. Yeah, I do. Uh, I do know a lot of people that have left. Um, I, I know a lot of people who have left the business knowing that they can pursue a career that is more financially stable as well as less physically taxing and has less hours. Um, and rightfully so that, you know, that's, I don't blame them at all. Um, I see a lot of people who have prestigious positions in various tiers of entertainment, whether it's like regional theater or live concerts or, or corporate stuff, look to other avenues to make money because they're, they're tired and they don't want to, they don't want to get grinded down anymore. Um, and they shouldn't. Matt Twilliger. People realize during the pandemic, they don't need to work. 20 hour days every day of the week. And I think there's, we got a larger group of people who are saying, no, I've, I've worked enough this week. I don't need to take every single call because they're going to keep coming. People are trying to have a life outside of work, which makes it harder to find enough people to fill calls because you, you actually need more people now to fill the same amount of work that we had before because they're not working themselves you know, overworked, under rested, all of that. So I, I think that's another layer to it for us that we're seeing is we actually need a larger workforce for the same amount of work because people are trying to have a more reasonable life. How is COVID affecting your plans for 2022? We're back to now busier than 2019. December was the first month where we did that. We had more work to dispatch in December 2021 than we did in 2019. So we are now back sort of above pre-pandemic employment levels, at least for that month. Um, and it's going to be, I think it's going to be that 
way for, you know, the next six months or something. So, Joe, is there a stable career path for live event workers? I think that we have to have a conversation to reinvent how we structure our work in this country and as live event workers before any of that can happen and then see what that actually is. Um, I think it's easy for us also, who, all of us who really, really care about this job to like kind of grind ourselves in and, and go into it and really like dig deep and tunnel vision into it. And then you step back and you go home and you're like, wow, this is really unhealthy. <laughs> I know I've done that over the last few years. Um, so looking back over the last two years of the pandemic gave me some time, some forced time to really understand what we're doing and what I was doing and what the industry makes us do and like really reevaluate it, I think. There has to be a path forward for live events workers. Uh, and that's just based on the fact that I've spent as much time in this career as I have. I have as much love for it. I started working in production when I was 13 years old at my church in North Carolina. And I got my hands on the sound console and suddenly the experience just elevated for me. And I felt like by that transitive property, everyone else, there's something so magical that can happen in live events when we bring people together, when we sit together, when we experience things together, magic happens. Catharsis happens. I think the big opportunity is that throughout our industry and others, I think workers have realized that they have more power than they thought they did. And they have more now than they've ever had in a very long time. But workers have always had more leverage than they've been convinced that they do. And I think there's an opportunity for us to figure out how to use it. It's that there's momentum behind the conversation. You know, it's not just like like water cooler talk anymore. It's, it's something that like we want to discuss because it's a hinge point in, in the industry. And I think that we now have the time to reinvent things because COVID is reinventing more stuff for us to move forward and like look at how we operate, especially in the middle of a pandemic. We can't force people the same way to do what we've been doing with a pandemic going on. So I, I think that having us vocally reinforce that our importance to the industry is equivalent to anyone who's on stage, off stage, in front of house, back of house, whatever, is one of the biggest opportunities we have to, to drive a better future for live event workers and make it more stable. Thanks for listening. Welcome to everybody out there. This is Wes Brain. I'm host of the show. Yeah, and this is Jason Houck. I'm the engineer. Starbucks is uh, oh, it's a wave of employees who work for Starbucks who want representation. They want better situation. They want a union is what they want. Uh, Starbucks Workers United. I mentioned that I was up in Eugene for a rally last well, it was last Thursday, and uh, up and back in one day, and what a rally we had. Got to meet some baristas, uh, including Jake and Kai, who are co-organizers of the baristas who are they're working to have a union. And uh, it was so interesting. Got to meet Kai Fireside, and if she's queued up to join us right now, uh, would love to hear from her. Kai, are you there? I am. Kai Fireside, thank you. I want to start with, if it's okay, just a little bit about you, Kai. For our listeners out there, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, you know, where'd you come from? A little bit about your background as we get into this 
issue. Kai. Uh, yeah, I, I grew up in Chicago. I lived there for 25 years. I then moved to Northern California for about five years before coming up here to go to UO. I graduated last spring with my Bachelor of Science in Archaeology. And I've been with Starbucks since 2015, so coming up on seven years here. Well, how'd you choose Eugene, may I ask? Uh, great town. Uh, uh, how'd you choose Eugene? I had gone on a road trip up five, and Eugene was one of the places we had stopped, and I just, I loved it. The, the Raptor Center with, with all the rescue birds, um, all the great coffee shops. <laughs> um, it's just it's just great. I love I love the weather. Actually, I truly love the weather. Well, we we have uh, we got a beautiful state. We're pretty proud of it here in Oregon. And uh, yes. tell us a little bit about uh, uh, your years there and what's led to what's going on today. Kai, you got the microphone. <laughs> Thank you. I'm. <laughs> Like you said, I've, I've been there for about seven years, so I've seen a lot of changes with the company. I've seen a lot of ups and downs and a lot of different things that they've tried. Um, I was there when Howard Schultz was CEO, and I do remember him stepping down. Kevin Johnson is now our CEO. Um, I remember in 2020 when Black Lives Matter first became a big movement, and initially Starbucks wasn't going to allow us to represent that movement at all at work and they changed they changed their stance on that really quickly to their credit and Starbucks became a big backer of the Black Lives Matter movement um, that made me so happy I, I was really proud of them they've also always been big proponents of pride pride month LGBTQ rights that's a really big deal especially because Starbucks tends to attract a lot of people from that community to work there. And so they they do seem to eventually always take the, the right side on these social justice issues. But right now they're struggling with that a lot, with, with unionization, with class inequality, income inequality. They're just not catching on as quickly as they have in the past. Wow, wow. Where's the process for uh, for a, a union vote to be able to take place, can you kind of describe what's what's happened and where we are now, please? The first step that we had to take was was getting in contact with the union, and then we had to get petition cards signed that we could send up to the NLRB to say, hey, we have support for this in our store. Um, it's been taking most stores two or three weeks to get enough petition card signed to file their petition. In our store, it took three days. We've got just such excited, unanimous support. We just ran through it. Um, wow. So <laughs> we, then it took a little while for corporate to respond to us at all. It was probably about two weeks before we heard from them. And they started sending in extra support management, as they call it, and we started having these conversations with higher-up managers that we'd never met before. Like I said, they were even importing some from other parts of the state. 
Um, so we've been doing that for a couple weeks, and the next step in the NLRB process is to have a hearing, and those are taking place over Zoom right now because of the pandemic. So we had to have uh, four of our partners testify to conditions in the store, and Starbucks for their side called up um, our store manager. And the, the argument that Starbucks is trying to make in these hearings is that a single store is not an appropriate bargaining unit, that we should not be able to vote just within our store, and we should have to have this vote that includes our whole district. And this is the same argument that they made in Buffalo, in Mesa, in Seattle. What they did differently in our district was they excluded two stores. We, in our district, have a store in Junction City, and we have a store all the way out in Coos Bay that's actually part of our district. It'll be probably a couple weeks until we have our ruling, and we expect we expect the NLRB to rule in our favor as they have been, and we expect Starbucks to appeal that ruling as they have been and then to lose that appeal as they have. Kai, thank you so much. Keep up the fight. Don't give up. We're with you all the way. Thanks for being our guest today. Goodbye. Thanks for having me. Bye. On the Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rowe. On the Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. And my name is Sally Rugg. Hey, Sal. Hey, we are going to talk with someone who we really like and admire. His name is Greg Jericho. He writes uh, economics for The Guardian. He's now working at a new gig at the Australia Institute at the uh, Centre for Future Work. We're going to talk to him about inflation because it's a thing again. It's sort of like, you know, the retro 70s thing that's come back and a lot of younger people are going, inflation, what the hell is that? Hey, Greg, how are you going? Very good, Francis. Sally, great to be here. Can I just ask you about yeah. The rubber hitting the road now on an election. And we've already heard them talking about it, the Conservatives, uh, the Liberals and whatnot. We can't afford a pay rise. Even though inflation's going up, we can't afford a pay rise. And in a gaslighting classic, as inflation goes up, even the, the question or the demand for a pay rise to keep pace with inflation is said to be the cause of inflation. Workers <laughs> are the problem. How do we deal with this? How, what is the way to combat this narrative? Because it is going to come raining down hard on us as this yep. election campaign gets underway. I mean, the classic thing about about wages growth is it doesn't matter the reality. Um, generally, Liberal Party politicians and business groups will be saying that wages are, are going too, are rising too fast. We're losing competitiveness. Um, unions are out of control. And, um, you know, Senator Betts uh, was saying this back in 2010, 2011, if I recall correctly, you know, calling for it that there was a wages breakout. And since then, wages of growth has essentially halved. Uh, <laughs> what we, the, the solution is actually, it's been given to us by the, the head of the Reserve Bank and even the head of the Treasury just a couple of weeks ago when uh, Stephen Kennedy appeared before Senate Estimates. There's a very simple way of working out what people should be getting in terms of wages growth and also whether or not our wages increases are putting pressure on inflation. And it's essentially this. Um, you put inflation and add it with productivity growth and that equals the wages. So, for example... The Reserve Bank tries to have inflation running at about 2.5%. That's their kind of their target. 
and they'd like productivity to grow at 1% a year. That's a, a nice sort of healthy number that we're, we're getting 1% more productive every year. So you put that together and if wages are growing by 3.5%, then as Stephen Kennedy told the Senate Estimates Committee, they're not putting pressure on, on inf- inflation because all of the gains in our wages are coming from two things. One, just the natural increase in prices and from our gains from productivity. So we're essentially just rewarding workers for having been more productive. And where the problem occurs is, you know, in terms of wages sort of maybe causing inflation to keep going up, is when we are getting wages growth that is actually above um, productivity and inflation. So we're kind of, you know, getting a bit more than perhaps we deserve in terms of prices rising and productivity. But the reality is that's not occurring at all. We're nowhere near it. So what do we do about all of this, Greg? How can we rein in inflation on housing and other things and get the pay rises we need? Like what are the levers that need to be pulled and can ordinary people influence those levers at all? Well, we do have an election coming up, so it might be worthwhile um, thinking about which political parties are more likely to favour the worker side of things when it comes to industrial relations. I'm actually one who's not too worried about inflation overall. I think the, the main thing we've seen in the past year or so is we've really shifted our spending towards durable goods because we couldn't go on holidays. We weren't able to go out and eat and everything. So there's been a massive, massive shift and that's just created supply blockages and I think they will sort of work their way through as as things open up. Housing, it really is about putting pressure on political parties to make this an issue. I think there are certain things that need to be done and the most obvious is because it's going to certainly benefit uh, the lower income workers is, is massively increase social housing. You know, build some public housing. This used to be something certainly when I was growing up was a very common thing. And I think Francis probably can remember as well back in the 70s. And, you know, even I, grew up in one of those, I grew up in one of those houses, yeah. Greg. My parents yeah. still live in it. Yeah, and now it's it's you know such a rarity, and you can even look at this in the figures. It, it's not a case of oh we just don't see them anymore. It's no, they're not building them anymore. So build more houses, build more public housing. In terms of wages, it really is a case of I think we've got to get out of this trap of almost agreeing with the narrative that any wage growth above inflation is bad. It's That's not the case. We should be getting at a bare minimum wages growth, keeping up inflation, and then it's a case of, right, we've got some productivity benefits. We deserve to get rewarded for those, not, oh, we've got to keep um, wages down, otherwise we'll be uncompetitive. I mean, it's it really is a case we need to, I think, rediscover, I think, a bit of our sort of mojo when it comes to bargaining and not be cowered by the business groups and I would say the Liberal Party and the National Party who would who claim that, you know, wages growth is out of control because the reality is they say that whatever the wages are, um, it's no it's just what they say and it's time to kind of push back and, and say, here's the reality. We've got the Reserve Bank governor saying this, we've got the head of the Treasury saying this. Let's be real and uh, let's reward 
workers fairly. I love I love it when you talk <laughs> economics like that, Greg. I love it. Give me the grogonomics. Thanks, Greg. Always great to chat and uh, we'll talk to you again soon on the job. No problems, Francis and Sally. Great to talk to you. Have a good one. Thanks, mate. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. Hello and welcome to the State of Working America podcast. I'm your host today, Kyle Moore, an economist with the program on race, ethnicity and the economy at the Economic Policy Institute, a nonpartisan think tank focused on leveling the economic playing field for all Americans and their families. So I'm really excited to be talking with Anna Gifty Apuku Ajiman, uh, the editor of the book we'll be talking, talking about today, The Black Agenda, Bold Solutions for a Rogue System. Anna is an award-winning Ghanaian-American researcher, entrepreneur, and writer. The book is the first publication to exclusively feature Black policy and research experts for a trade audience. Uh, how, how are you, Anna? It's, it's good, to have you, good to have you on the show with us. Thank you. First of all, it's such an honor to just be in conversation with you. Obviously, we are, our conversation is long overdue, but I'm really excited to be here. This, and this is kind of a maybe philosophical question. In your estimation, how how does blackness shape the production of knowledge, right? So what is it about black expertise that's needed in this moment and, and really all moments? That's such a deep question. And I knew you're gonna I knew you're gonna hit me with the philosophy. <laughs> you know, I, you know I, I had to. I, had I knew to, you're gonna I do, it. Have to do it. I have to do it. Um I had this conversation early on with Dr. Keisha and Blaine. She was my first stop on the tour and she compared me to uh, like a W.E.B. Du Bois of some kind, right? This idea of like harnessing black thought and doing it in such a way that is digestible for the public. The reality is that, you know, black life is engrossed in how we are operating just in public life, right? It's engrossed in social commentary. And so when we talk about black expertise, it's really the difference between living through racial inequality and studying it. And black experts are really good at both because you're black. So you have to live through these inequalities that intersect race, wealth and class and sometimes gender. Um, But at the same time, you also have these tools that you can now say, here are how the systems are working to suppress or undermine blackness. And so in those ways, I can now use my lived experience as sort of the backdrop for the kinds of questions that I'm asking. And that being said, I would say black experts have a huge role to play in the years ahead. And I think that people are underestimating <laughs> just how big of a role black experts have to play in ensuring that, you know, we all don't <laughs> kind of, you know, climate change doesn't take us all, right? Because climate change at the end of the day, at its root, is really about racial justice and whether or not black and brown communities are being served in a way and living in conditions that ultimately dignify their life. And so I think black experts role moving forward is going to be about steering the narrative. I get really annoyed sometimes when people are pitching op-eds, specifically myself, I'm talking to myself, right? You're pitching op-eds to these white editors and they don't see the relevance of what you're talking about because you're black. Or they don't say like, they say, oh, well, you bringing in race into this issue doesn't seem as relevant. But as we're seeing with the Ukrainian crisis right now and the war um, between Russia and Ukraine, blackness actually reared its ugly head in that, amidst that crisis, right? Where you had issues at the border and it was definitely because of race to the point that the United Nations came out and said, yeah, there's 
definitely racism happening at the border, right? So this idea of fundamentally situating solutions around how black experts um, think about the problems that we're facing globally, like that is, that needs to be core to any single conversation across policy industry, academia moving forward. And what I love about the, you know, I wouldn't say what I love about it, but what what I appreciate about, you know, the conversations happening around Ukraine and Russia is that we actually do have black experts and black journalists who are at the helm of these conversations, who are, you know, talking a bit about how race intersects with global and geopolitics in the region in a way that many people wouldn't have expected, right? And so that being said, again, black scholars have this understanding of inequality in a very deep way, and that's why they are best equipped to sort of lead us out of these crises that we're seeing across the world. Yeah, I, I love I love that you mentioned um, the lived experience that black experts have, right? Because you know, yeah. some people some people will see a book like this and see that it's all black authors and think things of like, oh they must be saying something fundamental about blackness that like makes black knowledge fucking different. It's like, it's not necessarily the case. It's just that they, because of the circumstances of the world that we live in, in all parts of the world, like even, even in Ukraine, like you mentioned, um, people who are black just have a different experience, right? And and they can right. bring the, those experiences to bear. Um, and especially when, when they have the tools to be able to do that, right? Like these experts do in this, in this work. Um, that gives you different perspectives and it leads you in different directions for policy and it gives you better solutions than if you were to exclude those voices. So again, so glad to see this work come to fruition, see it it out here and see people uh, taking advantage of it. Uh, Anna, uh, thank you so much for for coming and speaking with us today. (laughs) Um, It's it's been a great conversation. We got to talk more, got to stay in contact. Um, Yeah, for sure. Duh. (laughs) Of course. Uh, This has been Working America. I'm Kyle Moore. And uh, we will talk to you all next time. That's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, our roundup of highlights from just a few of the nearly 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the shows you heard today in the show notes for this podcast. You'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. And you can also find them by using the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produced the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this has been Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. <laughs> <laughs>